You know what a Christian is? I've got a really good definition. Someone who's bananas for Jesus. Congratulations. By this time, you should have successfully gone through the first four dance steps in Let's Disco, and you're now ready to put them to music. Just to give you an idea of how this record is put together, we've set up the instructions in four sections. The walking steps and four-beat turn, the touch steps and the two-beat turn, the camel walk and camel walk kick, and finally the triple or syncopated steps. We'll take each of these steps individually, talking you through them slowly at first, then to a normal four-beat count, and finally to the music. Be sure to keep the book handy in case you have problems. One additional word of advice. You have to listen closely, or you can easily get behind when listening to this record. If that happens, simply go back to the beginning of the cut and start over. With some patience and a little practice, we'll soon have you disco dancing with the best. So let's listen to the music, relax, and have fun. Good luck. Look, look. She's 14 years old. For y'all that don't know, I didn't pimp from my rock I ran East Palestine, and I'm a pimp, and I don't buy no land, y'all stand me. I'm sorry, but I shall have to lift your penis now to grease around it. This is a giant cock. Have I seen you before? Oh, yeah. Many times. Many times? Many times. Uh, I don't recognize a voice. Uh, okay, is this Marianne? Oh. Uh, have I had fun with you within the past two months? Yes. Okay, that cuts it down to a thousand. Are you Michelle? No. Are you Katie? No. Uh, uh, are you Annette? Yes. Ah. Uh. During the strip search, they found this gram of tar in my cooch. You like tar. On the run from Johnny Law. It ain't no trip to Cleveland.
there's no sense in trying I know cause I've been Okay, this is it. Thank you for joining me for the sixth episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. We have a great show this week. I interview the comedy writer Dan Powell of The Colbert Report, Daily Show, Robert Smigel's Funhouse, and Inside Amy Schumer, among other shows. You might have heard of a few of those. Not a bad resume. But first, I received a letter this week from a... Jessica Vance in Los Angeles, California. And she writes, Dearest Michael, why don't you ever tell jokes? You know, like real jokes. Love, Jessica Vance, Los Angeles, California. Well, that's a good question, Jessica. And I appreciate you including the five crisp $1 bills as an incentive for me to answer that question. So I thank you for that. Okay, I love jokes. I love song parodies and puns and jokes, traditional jokes. Now, I'm not going to sing for you today or tell you a pun, but I will tell you three jokes, the only three jokes that I know from heart, from memory. So here we go. Joke number one. Two women are playing golf. The first woman tees off and watches in horror as her ball heads directly at a foursome of men playing the next hole. So the ball hits one of the men, and he immediately grabs his crotch, falls to the ground, and proceeds to roll around in agony. Now the woman who hit the ball rushes to the man, and she begins to apologize. She says, please allow me to help, right? I'm a physical therapist, and I just know that I can relieve your pain if you allow me. And the guy says, no, I'll be all right. I'll be fine in a few minutes. So he remains in the fetal position. He's still grabbing his crotch. But the woman persists, and the guy finally allows the woman to help. So she unzips his pants. She places her hands inside, and she begins to massage him. And then she asks, how does this feel? And the guy says, it feels great, but my thumb still hurts like hell. So after a short pause in which nothing is said, there is this exchange. You think you're so funny, asked the lady, beginning to cry. I spent about 10 years training to become a physical therapist. My husband has MS. We're in debt for thousands. You're no comedian. The man, too, begins to cry. He stands up. Wiping his eyes with his sleeve, he cracks wise. I'm new at playing practical jokes, and I'm slightly drunk. Please, just show me a little patience, and I promise you that I won't do it again, okay? Okay, quips the lady, still crying. All right, then, okay. Joke number two. 
One day, while on vacation in New York City, two rednecks, Bubba and Daryl, they leave their hotel room to have dinner, and they're tired and they're hungry, so they decide to stop in at a kosher deli. So they have a seat, and then they ask the waitress what the house specialty is, and the waitress replies that it's matzo ball soup. So a few minutes later, the waitress brings the bowls of soup to Bubba and Daryl. They've never seen anything quite like this, but being hungry, they quickly eat the soup. And after they finish, the waitress arrives back, and she says, How do you like your soup? And Bubba zings, Mmm, that was good. But tell me, do you Jewish folks eat other parts of the matzah or just the balls? There is no laughter, just silence, which is broken only by the sound of the waitress grinding her dentures. Are they making fun of me, she thinks, or are they just being cute? She's quite frankly not sure. Are you making fun of me, she asks. Listen, says Bubba, we're only making fun of ourselves. Let's face it, we look just like two hicks, so we enjoy playing up the stereotype. No big deal, just a joke. So the waitress, not believing him, grabs the first item that she can find, which is a wooden broom handle, and begins to swing wildly. She sets upon the two with a vengeance, all the while trying not to disturb the dinner party taking place upstairs. It is her first week on the job, and she does not want to get fired. Joke number three. So a boy is walking down the street, and he notices his grandfather sitting in his rocking chair on the front porch of the house, wearing nothing from the waist down. And the boy asks, Grandpa, what are you doing? And the old man looks off in the distance and he doesn't answer. And the boy asks again, Grandpa, what are you doing sitting out here with nothing on below the waist? And without missing a beat, the old man retorts, Well, last week I sat out here with no shirt on and I got a stiff neck, so uh, this is your grandma's idea. So the air is still at this point and in the distance a car horn can be heard. The boy doesn't say anything, he doesn't say a word. He just stares at his grandpa's aged horrifyingly white penis and after a few moments the boy takes a bite out of his peanut butter sandwich waves goodbye and leaves for his friend jeffrey's house it was just a little while past the sunset strip i found the girl's body in an open pit her mouth was sewn shut but her eyes were still wide Gazing through the fog to the other side They booked me on a whim and threw me deep in jail With no bail, sitting silent on a rusted pail Just gazing at the marks on the opposite wall Remembering the music of my lover's call So you make no mistake, I know just what it takes To pull a man's soul back from heaven's gates I've been wandering in the dark about it long and thin but they say it's never too late to start again Oh when, oh when Will the spirit come a-calling from the soul to sin Oh when, oh when Will the keys to the kingdom be a man again It was dark as the grave, it was just about three the warden with his key came to set me free They gave me five dollars and a second hand suit A pistol and a hat and a worn out blue So I took the bus down to the Rio Grande And I shot a man down on the edge of town Then I stole me a horse and I rode it around Till the sheriff pulled me in and he set me down He said you make no mistake I know just what it takes To pull a man so back from heaven's gates I've been wanting in the dark about it 
Dan Powell is one of those comedy writers who, no matter what he touches, seems to turn into comedy gold. He's worked as an episode producer and writer on the very funny animated series Ugly Americans, which was on Comedy Central for two years. And he's also worked on important things with Dimitri Martin, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, Robert Smigel's TV Funhouse. And now he is the Emmy-winning executive producer of Inside Amy Schumer. Not bad. I spoke to Dan by phone. Daniel Powell, thank you for joining me. So how did you get involved with uh, Inside Amy Schumer? Did she approach you? She did. Um, we met on one of those uh, one-season-and-done Comedy Central shows, um, a fake real- a reality show parody. It actually wasn't a fake re- It was a real reality show, but there was a spoof of um, all the reality shows that were on at the time called Reality Bites Back, which aired in the summer of 2008. Um, the whole reason we did it was because, uh, if you'll recall, that was the writer's strike. Um, so the writer's strike hits, all of a sudden Comedy Central panics. Everything we do requires comedy writers, and now we have none at our disposal. Um, so that summer, Comedy Central did two reality shows, which is something they rarely did. Um, the Gong Show with David Tell was rebooted, and then... Um, uh, Reality Bites Back, which uh, Michael Ian Black hosted, and Amy was a contestant on the show. She actually ended up being the runner-up, um, and I was the executive in charge of production, and uh, we met on set and got along really well. But then I left the network a year later to produce Ugly Americans, and you know she was pursuing you know a, a very promising stand-up career. And then she ended up being featured on a couple roasts on Comedy Central. I think it was Trump and Charlie Sheen. Um, that she was featured on, and I think it was the Sheen roast in particular that um, uh, she got a you know huge amount of, uh, of attention for her performance. And Comedy Central did something that they don't do very often, which is they, they offered her a blind pilot commitment, which is she, she didn't go in and pitch an idea. They just reached out to her and they said, you're great, we love your performance, we would love to do something with you, we don't know what that is, <laughs> you know, um, go find a producer and figure out what the show is and then come back to us and, and, and tell us and we'll make the pilot. Um, and that's when she reached out. And so, you know, initially we, when we started developing the show, um, the initial sort of treatment that we were drafting was a uh, was going to be a, a, a talk show because Comedy Central had hinted they were looking for something along the lines of a Chelsea Laley, something that they might be able to put behind Colbert. Um, this is well before At Midnight. Um, and then... Amy spoke to our future head writer, Jesse Klein, 
and uh, Jesse told her, look, this, a blind pilot commitment is a huge deal. It's something that's rarely done. And this might be your one shot at like getting a show on the air at Comedy Central for the next few years. So just make absolutely sure that you're doing exactly what you want to be doing and not just doing what you think the network wants you to do. And so about 48 hours before we had to pitch the network, Amy texted me late at night and said, you know what, scrap the whole talk show thing. I want to do something where I can act. And, you know, Amy's a trained actor. She, you know... Um, she, she was a founding member of the collective here in New York, and I think until Trainwreck, a lot of people didn't realize how strong she is as an actor. They just knew her as a stand-up. Um, but so we essentially reverse-engineered a format based off of all of Amy's strengths. You know, a little bit of stand-up, the man on the streets, because she's so good at interacting with people off the cuff as the interstitial devices, and then a sketch show um, that would be able to feature her as an actor. And, you know, the, the tricky thing about developing a sketch show for Comedy Central at that time was that Key and Peele had already been on the air. Uh, Coral Show hadn't aired yet, but had been picked up, and we knew it was shooting already, so we knew it would be on the air before us. Um, so we really had to look at how are we going to tackle sketch in a way that isn't um, currently being done on the network. So that, that is the reason that Amy on Inside Amy Schumer pretty much always plays Amy, you know, some version of, whether it's the sort of monstrous version of, you know, her, her stage persona or the victim version of her stage persona, she's always playing a, a sort of version of her stage persona as opposed to doing a kind of character-driven thing the way Nick Kroll did. Um, and, you know, and, and we also focused very specifically on, like, relationships and gender politics because we knew that Key and Peele was going to be focusing on, like, racial dynamics and we, we couldn't really compete with them on on that turf. So um, that was kind of, that's the kind of history of the development of the show. So how does, how, do, how does one then go from the point of, okay, we're going to make this show to then producing a show of such quality and such... Um, of such interesting type of, of of a sensibility that it becomes a major thing. I mean, how, how do you make that leap? Um, you know, look, it, 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 I, I will say the, the pilot that we did was fine. It was solid. It was solid enough to get us picked up, but it was by no means like, you know, Comedy Central waited. It wasn't a, it wasn't a slam dunk. Um, and, and even our first season, I go back and look at it now, and I can see, like, all right, you know, we only did four sketches per episode instead of five. So they were a little bit longer, a little bit slower. Um, I go back and look at the first season, I feel like, you know, we looked at it, and we feel like, you know, this isn't pacing as quickly as we think it should. And so that's when we decided to um, add a fifth sketch in season two, and specifically a fifth sketch that would be like a cold open, you know, around two minutes. Because we, we saw that some of the shorter sketches we were doing tend to be, tended to get more attention than some of the longer ones. Um, so it was like, all right, look, if, if we add a, a, an additional, like, two, two-and-a-half-minute sketch, then, A, it's one more sketch that we're adding and shorter and faster paced, but also then we can trim an additional 30 seconds out of the remaining four and just pace the whole thing up in general. So I think that that change to the format from season one to season two um, helped the pacing of the show and, and overall helped tighten all the sketches up, and I think that helped the quality. Um, part of it was just sort of learning what people were responding to, you know, in season one. I, I think the sketch that really resonated in season one was a sketch called Compliments. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it, yeah. um, that was the one in season one that really got the most um, discussion and, and was written about the most. And so it, it felt like, oh, okay, there's room on Comedy Central of all places to have a show that talks about, you know, um, issues that, you know, are sort of specifically unique to women. 
um, which in general at Comedy Central had been like a huge no-no. It's like, all right, you're a woman on Comedy Central, but you got to be one of the guys. You know what I mean? Like, you, 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 our audience is, you know, predominantly sort of young frat boy types, and so uh, there was always this fear of like doing stuff that's you know, quote unquote, too female. You know, that's the thing that CBS, uh, CBS just got in trouble for. I mean, isn't it um, crazy in retrospect that they would, would that they would think that? It's so funny because that CBS thing, which I was very critical about um, on social media, is is something that was just casually bandied about Comedy Central um, for years. And oh, it's too female. Oh, this is male. This is too female. You know, I am I am certain that I passed on shows uh, and used the phrase too female, which I now am like completely aghast about. You know, it, it's not acceptable, and also it just doesn't it. It was wrong. It was completely wrong. Um, Sarah Silverman proved it wrong. Amy proved it wrong. And now, now look at the network, and it's it's Amy and Broad City and Nikki, and you know, and um, it was just utterly. It was not based in any fact whatsoever. You know, funny is funny, and stuff that's funny and has something to say is going to find an audience, um, regardless. And so this this idea that like oh, there's like the, the estrogen testosterone balances you know, is not is not where we need it to be to have a successful comedy show for a for a, an audience that is you know 60 percent male was just absolutely ridiculous but that that was the that was the sort of um conventional wisdom back then well, so it really was some in some areas i know paul feig is going through this now with the trailer for the new ghostbusters all of the middle-aged male comedy geeks are coming out of the woodwork complaining, I mean, really complaining, about the fact that it's now female-driven. It's such a bummer. I mean, you know, when I hear, if I, if I ever hear the phrase, like, like, are women funnier? Or, you know, it's just, I treat it with the same um, attitude that I treat, like, flat earth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, flat earth stuff. It's just, it, it doesn't have any basis in reality. And frankly, like, as far as the, the viability, um, you know, as far as the sort of, you know, uh, viability financially, you know, what's the financial potential of, of movies that are driven by women? I mean, the market has already clearly spoken. Look at Bridesmaids, look at Trainwreck, look at Spy. Like, it's, it's clear. It couldn't be more mathematically clear. You know what I mean? Um, so it's absolutely insane. Now, look, I mean, that, it still means they need to be, you know, good, you know, and needs to be quality. But, like, the, the notion that, like, um, a female-driven comedy that, you know, is, is well-made is going to be any less commercially viable than a, than a male-driven one is, is ridiculous, and it's, it no longer makes any sense. It seems so 50 years ago. I mean, this is all so new, crazy enough. You know, all these movies that are, are hilarious and we love, that guys can love, women can love, that just happen to star women. I mean, it it's almost seems like something out of the last century that, that we would even think that you couldn't make a female-dominated comedy. I just, I guess, like, you know, so-called conventional wisdom is just sort of, like, hard to change overnight. And, you know, this is an industry that's sort of based on acting out of fear. You know what I mean? Um, it's It's been written about many times. I'm not the first person to make this point, but, you know, uh, executives green light projects or don't green light projects um, based almost entirely out of fear of like if this decision is wrong I'm going to lose my job I'm going to lose my reputation and so um, there's just uh, most of these you know it's very hard to change 
a conventional wisdom wisdom that is essentially sort of based in cowardice. You know what I mean? Well, true, but I mean, even thinking about the greatest SNL performers the last 20 years and the greatest sketches, to me, the majority have been female, the greatest performances. So even just looking at that, one would think that, like, oh, my goodness, why not get a great female lead for, for a sketch and make it, um, you know, female-driven rather than a teenager or early 20-something male-driven? No, no, I, I hear you. I mean, but, you know, even look at... I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but, uh, I mean, look at... Uh, up until recently, uh, even, in the, even in the 90s and maybe even the early 2000s, up until, I think, like, Tina Fey's rise at the show, you will look at a lot of the female performers at SNL past talking about yeah. that it was not a great environment for women, you know? Not only that, um, a toxic environment. Yeah, I mean, Janine, you know, has talked about it, you know, um, Victoria Jackson or Don, like a lot of these women have talked about how it was not so great. And I, even, even beyond that time period, uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but there are... You know, there are plenty of women who I think would speak out that, you know, sometimes not the best environment for women over there. Um, but, uh, which is a bummer because, you know, you look at, well, yeah, like you said, the quarterbacks of the show for the last um, 10 years or so have been Kate McKinnon, Kristen Wiig. Yeah, just and, great. And uh, it couldn't be more clear who's driving the show. So with, with um, your show, Inside Amy Schumer, what does it take to produce, like, I've never seen anything like a 12 Angry Men uh, sketch that you guys did. I mean, this is different than Mr. Show. This is different than Monty Python, SNL. It was almost like a mini movie that you would that you would show. How much effort, writing wise, and then directing wise, producing wise, goes into a sketch of that um, length and that complexity? Um, you know, it was worked on uh, a lot. I mean, Amy had um, the idea for the sketch very early in the season, and then, pardon me, it. Um, it uh, transitioned to uh, the idea that it was going to, you know, let's take this from being a sketch to maybe like a full episode came from Amy, you know, a kind of a couple weeks into the season. And it was one of these things where Jesse and I were like, yeah, look, let's give it a shot. Let's at least try to write it as one and see where the writing process takes us, you know. Um, and so Amy tackled, you know, the first number of drafts. And, and so, you know, look, this is very much Amy's, it was Amy's idea, it was Amy's baby, you know, and, you know, very personal to her for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, I have to give credit to Kevin Kane, who I think uh, is a supervising producer on her show, who I think planted the initial seed of let's make this a whole episode. Um, so, you know, Amy tackled the first handful of drafts, and then a lot of, of what you see in that episode was already there. Um, what kind of lacked was, you know, that sort of three-act structure that we needed to to put it on TV, you know, you know, cliffhangers at the commercial breaks and really making sure that all of the content was in the right order and that it was heightening properly. So Jesse Klein, uh, our head writer, took a quick pass at it, and then it came to the room. Um, and so we looked at the sketch, and then we started breaking it down scene by scene, uh, you know, put it up, put all the scenes up on index cards on the board, changed some of the order, you know, made some adjustments to make sure that we were accounting for the act breaks. Um, and then, you know, the casting process, honestly, was like a lot of it was just done by Amy on Twitter, you know, her reaching out directly to Jeff Goldblum and John Hawks and Paul Giamatti, who'd been on the show a season before. Um, our casting director, Gail Keller, threw um, Vincent Carthizer into the mix. Um, we actually had been talking to Bobby Cannavale about playing um, 
the role that uh, Nick DiPaolo ended up playing, and it looked like he was going to do it, and then um, unfortunately he had a scheduling conflict and had to back out, and so we reached out to Nick, who Nick 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 uh, performed that role at the table read and did such a tremendous job that the second. Bobby became unavailable. We just reached out to Nick right away and made him cancel a vacation, <laughs> so he would he would come and do it. And he was incredible. I, I really, you know, Paul Giamatti got nominated for an Emmy for that episode, but I, I really felt like, um, but I, I felt that Nick DiPaolo deserved the nod as much as as, as Paul. And Nick, who's known mainly as a stand-up, just delivered an incredible acting performance in in that. And um, everyone, you know, Amy, pardon? Everyone in that was just amazing. No, it was great. It was it was a real pleasure to watch that. You know, we sh- we we shot that in two days um, at, at a soundstage in the middle of a blizzard, <laughs> um, and uh, it's it was shot at Cinema World in Brooklyn. It, uh, I mean, it's sort of famously known for it used to be essentially like a porn studio in the seventies, and uh, and then it became, it was where they shot a lot of the early MTV music videos. Um, basically, what it is now is it's the it's the cheapest stage that we can um, afford and still. Uh, qualify for the New York City tax breaks. <laughs> that is why we shoot there. And um, it's so weird because, you know, you've got the main soundstage, but then all of the dressing rooms still look like, frankly, like 70s-era porn sets or MTV music video sets. Like, there's like a submarine-themed dressing room and a jungle-themed room, and it's so, and it's, they're not well-designed. It's not like, you, you know, it, it's, it, they're crumbling, you know, these were, it's a 30-year-old high school play submarine set that's crumbling and it's just it's really kind of gross and weird and and so that first day when you know the blizzard hit everyone you know we had to get started a couple hours late because it took people forever to get there and we did a full read through because this was the first time all the actors were assembled we did a full read through in a room upstage that's designed to look like a jungle so you have this surreal experience of like we're we're snowed in um you have Paul Giamatti and Jeff Goldblum and John Hawks and Vincent and all these incredible actors sitting around a table and basically what used to be like, you know, uh, a low-grade like porn set um, reading through this script. And then we shot it over two days. Um, Ryan McFall co-directed it with Amy. And, you know, Amy had studied the movie very specifically to figure out, you know, how are we going to emulate the look? How are we going to emulate the shots? Um our production team, who's incredible, led by Alan Lampert, uh, they they built a full replica of the Lumet uh, set within that soundstage. And then we just shot there for two days, and I think the second day we went to like 3 a.m., um, but uh, it was uh, it was pretty magical, you know. It was just one of those experiences that I don't know that I'll ever have again. <laughs> part part of it was a bummer for me because um, the whole most of the time we were shooting it, I was trying to triangulate the schedules for Julia Louis Dreyfus and Tina Fey and um, uh, Patricia Arquette to shoot the last fuckable day sketch uh, the following week. And you can imagine trying to figure out how we can get all three of those women in the same place at the same time, how difficult that was. So I missed a great deal of it because I was producing the next sketch that, uh, you know, probably the second most talked about sketch of the season. Sometimes the logistics are are just as difficult as the creative aspect of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, that was one of those things where just trying to figure out how to, like, I, I, I thought that sketch had fallen apart um, 17 times. And then even when we flew to L.A., we flew to L.A. to shoot that sketch. It was the only sketch we shot in Los Angeles. And um, we drove up to set, and even up until the moment that I saw all three 
actresses like sit down at the table <laughs> I was like this is going to fall apart any second you know yeah. Tina Fey flew in uh, just for the day from Albuquerque to wow. shoot the sketch so, yeah Nicole Hollis Center directed it for us yeah, everyone was just doing it for, for the comment that the sketch was making and uh, again it was one of those very you know, keep in mind that when we shot the, the rest of the season, we were in one of the worst winters in New York. You know, we had been, we'd had several days canceled because of snowstorms, and uh, the, the whole time it was just freezing. And then we fly to LA, and all of a sudden, we're in this valley in Santa Clarita, and it's like beautiful. It's 80 degrees out. You know, the, the birds are chirping. They're like butterflies flying around. And then, you know, four of the best comedic actresses of our time, you know, Patricia Arquette had just won an Academy Award the week earlier. Um, are suddenly sitting at a table and Nicole Hall Center is directing them and Jesse and I were watching from Video Village just like, what is happening? <laughs> what is this season? Well, the um, it was surreal and then the setting itself was surreal so it has a really hallucinatory look and feel to it. Yeah, yeah, and I, we, um, our, our colorist, uh, someone who really gets credit is the colorist, but uh, our colorist, Troy, he, you know, put this effect on it so it kind of blew out all of the... Uh, all of the color, you know, all, all of the whites in it and everything like that, just to give it this very kind of, like, surreal glow. Yeah, like Robin Williams' What Dreams May Come or something. <laughs> that's, a really, that's a great reference. Let's jump back a bit. How did you become an executive at Comedy Central? Was it your, did you want to become a writer eventually, or did you want to become a, 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 an executive for TV? Uh, it's funny, I, I really, um, I moved to New York to work in independent film, uh, I had interned at Good Machine. I interned at Conan, and I did comedy in college. Um, but I interned at a Good Machine, which later became Focus, uh, which was a cool indie film company to intern for because it was um, it was the home of like Ang Lee and Todd Solondz and Todd Haynes and uh, Ed Burns. So you know James Sheamus had an office there, um, and Ted Lindy and David Hope. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Ted Hope and David Lindy. Um, all had offices there. And uh, it was a great learning experience. And when I finished college a year later, um, I sort of had been given uh, the incorrect impression. I think it was my own naivete I didn't really understand. Um, but I, I thought that there was a job waiting for me there. And um, it kind of fell through. So I was stuck in New York. And uh, I already signed a lease. And I didn't have the job that I thought I had. So I, uh, I, uh, I went to a temp agency and told them that I was interested in uh, comedy and also indie film. And just out of like sheer, you know, luck and timing, uh, a, a position opened up, had opened up within two weeks at Comedy Central Development. Um, and at the time I didn't think anything of it because I didn't know anything, but now having spent 15 years working for Comedy Central in some capacity, I think the development department has used like three temps in 15 years. So the fact that a job opened up within two weeks of me saying that was just um, sheer luck on my part. Best temp job I've ever, I, I temped for seven years. I never heard of anything like that. Yeah, I lucked out. I think part of it was because I told them like, I came and I was like, oh, I'm interested in comedy. And then that job opened up right away. I think I was just at the you know, uh, I had just mentioned it, so I was on their mind, you know. Uh, I, I, by no right should I have gotten that job because I, I had just come in. There was probably, uh, a, you know, a number of temps at that firm who had done far more work than me who were entitled to that position, and I got it, and I feel bad. But um, like I, yeah, it really was. And I worked there for a couple weeks, and I worked for Jesse Klein. And, um, and the, they had a position open. I interviewed for it, didn't get it. 
but they liked me enough that they were like, all right, look, we're not going to hire you for this permanent job, but we have this new show called TV Funhouse um, that's gearing up, and they need um, staffers, so we're going to send you over to PA for them. And uh, I, I researched and PA'd at uh, TV Funhouse for about a month, uh, which is where I met Robert Smigel, and... Um, and yeah, and then uh, during that time, I actually, I was only there for about a month because I interviewed for another job at Comedy Central in talent relations, and, uh, and I got that job. I spent about a, nine months as an assistant in talent, and then, um, and then uh, after nine months, I, the, the person who originally got the job in development instead of me left, and they came over, and they were like, all right, do you still, do you still want that job you interviewed for almost a year ago? And so I made a lateral transition to, to work for Jesse in, uh, in development. And I was there for about a year before I left for The Daily Show. And what um, The Daily Show? Uh, I was a researcher in their field department and then eventually, you know, bumped up to an associate producer. Um, it was mostly pitching ideas for their correspondence segments. Um, and then once you pitch it and it's approved, um, then you have to actually go about, like, booking it, you know, booking the people who need to be on it and lining up everything for the field producer. And uh, I field produced a handful of pieces when I was there, um, about four segments, I think, uh, during the time I was there, mostly with uh, a couple of Ed Helms and a couple of Bob Cordry. Um, but uh, it, was, it was this thing where, like, I was about 24 years old and I was looking, I was very ambitious and looking to get bumped to field producer pretty quickly, um, but the show had just won... You know, the Emmy for its first Emmy, if its first of many, uh, for best, you know, variety series. And uh, uh, they sort of told me, look, you are extremely young, and, uh, you know, we're, we have to hire new two field producers, and we know you've been, like, measuring the drapes in the offices. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, John feels this is no longer uh, a place where we're going to be, like, you know, you know, using junior producers to help them find their training wheels. You know what I mean? Like, John's going to be hiring a couple of really experienced field producers um, to come on board now that we're sort of like the, the reigning champs. Um, and it was, a you know, it was a disappointment at the time to be passed over, but um, it honestly, like, it kind of lit a fire in me to say, like, all right, you know, look, if, if, um, if I'm not going to move up as fast as I want here, then I'm going to look elsewhere. And uh, that's that's when there had been a shakeup at Comedy Central, um, and I reached back out to them, and uh, and a couple junior development executive positions opened up, and uh, that's when I made the transition back over. So it was very much like a tactical um, decision to basically like rise up through the ranks of the industry faster than I felt I could at The Daily Show because The Daily Show had, you know. It, it's interesting. Sometimes it's easier to move up quicker at shows that aren't uh, incredibly successful because no one leaves those shows. You know, you, you advance by um, when people leave and then you, you move up. Um, but at a show like Conan or at a show like um, The Daily Show, people rarely leave because that kind of like job security and to work on a show of that um, quality is so rare in this industry that no one's leaving there. <laughs> no one's no one's moving on. Um, so it was a really a tactical decision to move up quicker. And, and frankly, it, it ended up working because by the time I left in 2009, um, I left to be an executive producer on Ugly Americans. And um, so I was an EP of an honor series before 
I hit 30, which uh, is kind of a rare thing in this industry. And um, it was purely because being an executive at Comedy Central was sort of like a TV boot camp where, you know, I, I oversaw development of a number of series. And like I said, only Dimitri's made it to a second season. But I oversaw development of like scripted series and sketch series and animated series and, you know, even reality stuff and things like that. So by the time I left, I felt like I had a really... Um, a great deal of experience uh, in, in TV production across sort of a, a bunch of different genres. But it also shows how intelligent you were, for, especially for someone that young. Instead of getting pissed off or being uh, feeling hurt, you took the initiative to know that sometimes you have to make a move, and it's up to you uh, sometimes, rather than just feeling sorry for yourself, to um, push forward rather than being stagnant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's advice I give a lot of people now where it's like, look, I mean, it's always great to get staffed on a show like The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight or something like that, but I mean, sometimes the, the way to move up more quickly is to is that you have to leave, you know, and, and it's it's the same way at, even at, on the on the corporate side at, at companies like Viacom and, and things like that where, unfortunately, there's sometimes a, um, a situation where loyalty isn't rewarded in the way that it should be. You know, um, like for example, um, when I left Comedy Central the first time, I left as an assistant, went to The Daily Show uh, as a, um, uh, you know, to, to become a researcher and then associate producer. I went back to the network two years later as an exec. If I had stayed at the network as an assistant, it probably would have taken me another year or two to get promoted to like a coordinator position. And then after that, maybe another two or three years to be promoted to the manager position. Whereas by leaving and coming back, I was able to cut that time in half, if not more, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. Sometimes you're only respected if you leave. It, it's, it's sort of, it's an interesting like, I don't, I don't know what the psychology is behind it, but it's definitely true. Well, There's no question. This is a general question, but I'm always kind of curious. What exactly is your role? I mean, what do you do that you were in charge of? It seems like a, a, an all-encompassing um, umbrella type of position, but can you get into exactly what you do? Yeah, and it also depends project to project. Like um, on Ugly Americans, I was, you know, I wrote five of 31 episodes, and, um, you know, on on this new project with Devin, I'll, I'll co-write the pilot, and, um, you know, on Inside Amy Schumer, I'm, I'm a credited writer, but I don't have the same um, sort of impact on the overall writing as, say, like Amy or Jesse Klein or some of our other, our other um, more senior writers like Christine Nangle or Tammy Sager. Um, I would say my job on Inside Amy Schumer is more of, like, operational showrunner and project manager, which is just, you know, overseeing the entire project from start to finish and making sure that, you know, uh, all the money is spent in a way that uh, Amy's vision is, you know, is best represented on screen, that we can get the most out of our money, and that, and that frankly, all, all the departments are communicating with each other to make sure that... Um, Everything gets done, everything gets cleared, and uh, we get these episodes on air. It's essentially a huge project management job, you know, and then there's a lot of creative involvement because um, I'm in all the edits and everything like that. But ultimately, you know, it's inside Amy Schumer. It's, it's Amy's voice, and it's, she is the creative showrunner of the show without question. Um, and it's more of like an operational showrunning job, whereas on other shows it's more of a, you know, I still have all of those duties, but, uh, you know, 
you know, I'm a little bit more involved in the, um, directly in the creative, you know, if it's a show that I create, you know, that I, where I wrote the pilot or something like that. Right. So I'm sure you get asked this often. You, um, you're in a position of some power now. You have a great resume. If a young writer comes up to you, someone who wants to write comedy for TV, what do you tell them to do? And just as importantly, what do you tell them not to do? Um, well, the first thing I would say is you probably should move to Los Angeles. <laughs> um, I've made a good go of it here in New York, but New York is definitely, you know, a satellite industry or, you know, a satellite of the entertainment industry. There's just not as much out here. There's a lot of production thanks to the tax breaks, but um, even a lot of the shows that are shot in New York are written in Los Angeles, including girls, you know, believe it or not. Um, so, you know, look, if the math is just better in L.A. You can certainly make it work out here in New York. Um, but whether you're in New York or Los Angeles, if you want to be a comedy writer, I would say the first place to start is to enroll in classes at one of the comedy theaters. Um, UCB New York, UCB L.A., um, Improv Olympic, Groundlings, um, The Pit. Um, because, you know, the comedy as I'm sure you know from your books and all, every, everything that you've written, uh, the comedy community is a community, you know. Um, it's nearly impossible to become a successful comedy writer by writing sketches by yourself in an office and then sending them to agents, you know, sending them out to agents. It, it, the idea that that's going to be what gets you your first staffing job is, is nearly impossible. You know, you're, you're staffed through recommendations, you're staffed through junior agents, um, seeing your material on YouTube now, you know, and, and, and reaching out to you and, and figuring out what your story is. So, yeah, that's the recommendation. I mean, the recommendation is enrolling in classes, and not just for learning the craft, which is very important, you know, because comedy writing is a very specific skill set, and like anything else, it needs to be learned and honed and figured out. But um, it's also about meeting like-minded people that you're going to come up with, you know. Um, if a 20, you know, 23-year-old writer meets me, there's very little I can do for them because I already have a whole network of people that I work with and, and everything like that. But what they need to do is meet other 23-year-olds, you know, at the UCB or whatever and start a sketch group and start, you know, calling in favors and shooting sketches and cultivating, you know, a, a YouTube channel and things like that. And then they'll get better and better at it. And then eventually, you know, a junior agent at UTA or CAA or whatever is going to stumble onto a sketch of theirs that goes viral and uh, or gets attention, and they're going to bring them in for a meeting. And, and, and that's really how people start to get noticed and, and start to get jobs in this industry. Or conversely, you know, you, you, you're in a sketch group with someone who gets cast on SNL or another sketch show, and when a writing position opens up, they say, hey, who, who do you know that's a good young writer? And it's, you know, you know that person that you came, you know, that was in your sketch group at, at the pit or whatever, and uh, that's how you get the job. So that really is, you know, the recommendation I have for most graduates. It's, it's um, you know, you know, walk directly to the nearest comedy theater in your neighborhood and, and sign up and uh, just work with, you know, collaborate with as many people as possible and, and really start honing your craft. I think that's terrific advice. You have to open yourself up creatively and even from a human standpoint, you need to meet as many people as possible, not just for networking, but it's just the healthy thing to do. And I think your comedy will also improve if you go through experiences with other people who, like you say, will be the ones who will eventually hire you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this whole, whether it's TV or film or, you know, this is a collaborative art form. Um, I mean, stand-up is a totally different thing. I mean, you know, that's not the world that I come from. But, um, you know, 
TV writing, TV producing, it's all a collaboration. And so what you really need to do is just build a, a network of people that uh, have the same sensibility as you, that you respect, you know. Um, you know, I, I, when, when I was in college, it was the attitude was like, oh, I can just do it all myself, you know. And it, it, the, the best thing I've learned as a producer is knowing what your limitations are and saying, like, all right, you know, if um, I have a good script here, but I'm not the world's greatest joke writer, but, you know, I know, you know, dozens of writers who are um, savants at writing jokes, so I'm going to send this over to them to do a punch-up pass, and that's what's going to make this thing better. Um, you really have to let go of your ego and recognize, like, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then you, you bolster your weaknesses by bringing in people that... Um, to compensate for those, you know. That's right. It can only you can only be improved if you open it up, and ideas will will spark off it that you never would have thought of otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's also frankly just what makes this industry fun. You know, it's the, the coolest thing about this job, and this is going to sound incredibly corny, is that my favorite thing about Inside Amy Schumer is that I got to go in and sit in a writer's room with. Jesse Klein and Amy Schumer and Kim Caramelli and Christine Engel and Tammy Sager and Kurt Metzger and, you know, like Mike Lawrence and just this, like, room full of some of the funniest people on the planet. And we just threw out ideas and made each other laugh and, you know, used each other's strengths to make all of the sketches better. And none of us were, like, precious about our own ideas because once we brought, even if the idea originated with us, once it comes to the table, everyone's chiming in, everyone's making it better. It's a huge collaboration. We never made it. Jesse and I were, and Amy and I were very specific about this is not going to be a competitive environment. This is going to be a collaborative environment. And that's why... Uh, it's fun, and frankly, I think that's what's contributed to its success. I think people watching the show see that we're having fun in the writers' room and on set and everything like that, and that's what. Uh, and I think they respond to that. Yeah, I think so too. I think a lot of writers, and I was like this myself, felt that my ideas would be stolen. But no one cares. No one's going to steal your ideas, and it's a very unhealthy place to be when you when you shut yourself off from the world, especially when you need to be connected which is really what comedy is all about. You need to have some sort of tethered aspect or relationship to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the collaboration is what makes this, you know, and collaborating with talented, funny people is like, you uh, you can't be too insecure about, <laughs> you know, stuff. Uh, you, 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 when you find someone who's more talented than you, the, the appropriate response is to be like, I need to work with this person instead of like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to defeat this person or something like that. Yeah, Harold Ramis told me that. He, I asked him his advice. He said, what I can give is just find the most talented person in the room. It's not going to be you and go hang out with that person. It, it really is incredible advice. And uh, it's funny hearing that from someone as talented as Harold Ramis. Exactly. One of the best writers out there. Nothing, nothing makes me happier than when uh, I see extremely successful people on Twitter like, uh, have a moment of insecurity or when I hear from like extremely successful producers how difficult yeah. it was to get something made because it's like oh alright it's always hard it's always well, that's another great lesson you know it's not easy for anyone not no one it, no one out there is on easy street and I think the sooner you realize that people out there everyone struggles and is, is miserable at times I think the easier it'll be for you oh without question I mean uh, you know it's funny because one note you get a lot from when you take an idea out and you start to like show it to you know agents and and uh, like production execs and things like that. It's like, well, you know, this this might be hard to sell. You know, this is kind of a weird idea. It might be a tough sell. And it's like my response to that is always, everything is hard to sell. 
like everything is a tough sell. So you might as well, you know, go out there with some with a project that you're really passionate about, you know, whether it's your Mad Men or your, you know, Desperate Housewives or whatever, that project that seems so impossible to sell, everything's hard to sell, nothing's a slam dunk, the math is always terrible, you know, the, the odds of it ending up on TV are really hard, and so you might as well go out with something that you're so excited about making that you're willing to dedicate the next five to ten years of your life on it, as opposed to saying, well, here's something I think they want. You know what I mean? Like, because that's going to be just as hard to sell, and then you've you've already compromised out of the gate. And um, yeah, everything's impossible. So I, there's this one uh, story that I, whenever I get bummed out about, you know, if a deal fell through or I didn't sell something, um, I read an article once about Steven Spielberg making Lincoln, and I guess Liam Neeson had originally been attached or something, and. Um, that didn't work out, and he had Leonardo DiCaprio over for dinner, and uh, DiCaprio said, you know, hey, what's going on with Lincoln? Is that still happening? And Spielberg's like, ah, like, Neeson fell out, and, like, there's only so many people who can play that part, and so unless I can get Daniel Day-Lewis to do it, you know, uh, it's not going to happen, and he, he's, you know, I, he hasn't returned my phone calls or something, and DiCaprio's like, I, we work together on Games of New York, I'll give him a call, we'll try to figure this out, but, like, the most commercially successful filmmaker of all time, Spielberg, was having trouble getting a movie made, and, and Leonardo DiCaprio had to, like, step in and, and make an introduction to, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis or whatever to get that movie made after, and it had been years in development, and so it's like, all right, if, if it's difficult for Spielberg, it's going to be difficult for everyone for the rest of their careers. That's right. I think what you have to do is just do what you want, put your head down, keep moving forward, and just try to, try to stay positive. You know, what else can you do? No one has it... Um, completely easy no one at any level is uh i, I especially think in comedy has a green light uh, and there may be one or two people but it's a hustle it's a struggle but it should be fun right and you have to do what you want to do how you want to do it and hopefully it'll be more uh, interesting than a career in accounting no yeah i mean that's exactly it i mean i'm it's funny like everyone's like oh you know you've assumed you have this hit show and the awards and everything it must be so great now you can like take a breath and relax, you've like made it. And it's like, I'm working harder now than I've ever worked because the show has had this great run, but it's also opened up these doors where it's like, if I don't capitalize on them now, you know, then, you know, I have to capitalize on them now before they go away, you know? <laughs> like, And then if they go away, I'm going to have to work even harder. So there's no point in this industry at which you can take a step back and, be like, oh, okay, now I've made. Now I don't have to work hard anymore. It's 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 a constant hustle, and um, also, you know, it's like, look, I only have, you know, what another like thirty so years or something like that, and there, there's so many different projects I want to do and things I want to say, and so you just have to be constantly, constantly working on improving your craft and and developing different ideas because again, of the ideas you develop, like only a very small percentage are ever going to see the light of day. And when all is said and done, it's, it's the stuff that gets made that, uh, you know, that counts towards your career, not not the development deals, it's not the busted pilots, it's, it's the stuff that, that got finished and, and made it to the end that, that's, that ends up on your resume. That's right. Great advice. Daniel Powell, thank you for joining me. This is really, really fun. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Oh, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. All right, take care.
turn rotten. I can't believe how naive that I've gotten. Over the years, seems like I'm getting dumber. Reminiscing to a time when I was younger with a hunker. Full of dreams, determination, self-esteem. But now it seems they hesitate to be on my team. You know the routine. When you win and they grin it. All up in your face like they was with you from the beginning. But on the flip side, when you watch the black of real time. Fools climb by, you slipped and let shit slide. Beside the fact, my voice is whack. Clowns is running around, talking about a smoke crack. Ain't got no homies that got my back. Yeah, I'm a brother, but sometimes I don't feel black. My girl is white, my game ain't tight. Niggas who ain't seen me in a while be like, dude, you alright? Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, coolin'. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, coolin'. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, coolin'. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, Almost every day In the back of your mind You probably thinking I was gay But nah I'm just a bitch ass nigga The type to get jacked If I'm the rich ass nigga See I've been a loser Just about all my life Type to trying to turn a hoe To a housewife What do you expect I give respect And feel for a hoe Niggas keep in check I'm far from hard Emotionally scarred On Pico Boulevard I was regarded as a retard I make myself sick Get on my own nerves Immature, insecure, grown-up nerds Half MC on a label that's unstable Chopping Bliggy on the table Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling? When they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cool then. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling? When they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cool then. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling? When they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cool then. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling? When they be like, what's up, fat lip? Okay, that's it for the 424th episode of Doing It With Mike Sachs. Here are some highlights from the upcoming podcast. I will call a mentally challenged man on the subway Chooch and then record his and the rest of the subway car's reaction. Two-Step Lucy will be here again to show off her verbal dexterity while chewing on a Twizzler but not with her mouth. I will be reading my epic poem about my hatred for fried plantains. The long-awaited results of all of my STD tests will finally be released as sung by the cast of the Tony Award-winning Hamilton. I will be sharing my recipe for my infamous eight-layer rainbow matzo balls that my Mima used to make for all of my gay friends. 
I will be deep diving into the peculiar relationship that exists between Mark Maron and Lauren Michaels. This will be a 900-minute expose, the real nitty-gritty, uh, the popcorn incident, the hurt feelings, the what-ifs, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, heady stuff. Finally, Judge John R. Rajman will be here, waxing his ironic mustache and cracking wise about all things ironic. You'll just love this guy. Actually, there will be one more thing that I'm going to do. I will adopt a homeless man and teach him to participate each morning in new Chinese calisthenics in a park just across from an elementary school. You don't want to miss this, folks. This is going to be a good one. I appreciate you joining us. I really do. I look forward to seeing you next week, especially you, that misunderstood shy one in the far back with her head in her notebook doodling. A few shout-outs. Dan Powell for sitting down and talking with me. Tyler Wall, Brian Hadell, and Andrea Silenzi for donating to our Patreon. This was a reward they chose, me mentioning their names. Tyler Wall, Brian Hadell, and Andrea Silenzi. I love you all. Rob Schulte, the great Rob Schulte, for producing, editing, wrangling, doing everything. You can reach him at robkschulte.com. Let me spell that, R-O-B-K-S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. His podcast is GFY with Max and Rob. It's great. Check it out. If you want to contact me, I'd love it, MikeSacks.com, M-I-K-E-S-A-C-K-S.com, or doing it with MikeSacks.com. So until next time, keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. You know what a Christian is? I've got a really good definition. Someone who's bananas for Jesus.